We return to James after several weeks away. So remember now what we have said about this book, different as it is from any other book of the New Testament. It is a book of wisdom, the only such book in the New Testament. It is more like Proverbs than any other New Testament writing. Wisdom, as we have said, is a biblical term for character, for virtue, for artful living, that essential foundation of godliness that makes possible a life of true obedience to God's commandments. It's not obedience itself. Wisdom is not the law. So much as it is the sagacity by which one manages to obey God's commandments. We've often defined wisdom, the Hebrew term hakmah, as the skill of living well, the art by which one puts into practice a Christ-like life in defiance of all the obstacles to that life posed by the world, the flesh, and the devil. There is very little theology in James, as there was very little theology in Proverbs. Nothing about election, nothing about the Lord's death or his resurrection. James' letter is devoted to what I suppose we could call the fine points of Christian living. But points that have everything to do with whether or not and to what extent we will actually live the Christian life. It will come as no surprise to you then that James deals with our speech in Proverbs and in more than one place. In Proverbs, the words that come out of our mouth for good or for ill are a principal theme, as you know. Our lives, to a very great degree, are a function of our speech, what we say and how we say it. I color-coded by theme the book of Proverbs in my ESV Bible, and I noted this week that there were some 90 separate sections uh, underlined in yellow, the color I chose to identify statements having to do with speaking. In some cases, it was a single line in a number of others, it was several verses together. But no one can doubt how fundamental to true wisdom is the governing of our speech and of our speaking with the intention of doing good and loving God and others with our words. So again, it should come as no surprise that James devotes attention to our speech. We're beginning to read at chapter 3, verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Now, we've just finished a section in which James has reminded us that faith without works is dead. But works are not only actions. Words are also works. And so ours must be the product of our faith in Christ. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. Now, James regards himself as a teacher. Notice the we in verse 2. And he seems to be warning in particular of the sin of hypocrisy that so easily is committed by teachers. That is, recommending behavior one does not himself practice or condemning behavior of which he himself is guilty. 
But it's worth noting that when Paul wished to prove the universal sinfulness of mankind, he cited in that list of Old Testament citations in Romans chapter 3, several texts from the Psalms having to do with speech. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. It's also worth noting that the first sin following the fall, as we read in chapter 3, verse 12, was the speaking of self-excusing and condemning and hurtful words. And when Isaiah was confronted by the holiness of God and compelled by that vision of God to confess his own sinfulness, the first thing he he thought to say was that he was a man of unclean lips. Nothing gives us away as sinners as quickly as our speech. As the Lord reminds us, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what comes out here is an indication of what actually lies here. Our speech is the first, it is the primary evidence of our fallen state. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. If a little bit in a horse's mouth no matter how powerful the horse, and a small rudder at the back of a ship, no matter the size of the ship or the power of the wind, can have such a powerful influence. Well, so it is with the tongue. The magic of words is a great part of the story of human life, but so is the damage done by mere vocables uttered by the mouth. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. You know this, every forest fire consumes thousands of square miles of timberland, but it was started by a tiny flame, perhaps a cigarette butt, or a spark from a campfire. Verse 6 is difficult, but the gist is clear. The tongue, perhaps more than any other part or power that we have, represents the unrighteousness of our world and of our own hearts and lives. And it remains a source of sin and of the consequences of sin throughout our lives. The fact is, some of our vices drop away as we get older. Not this one. No one yet, however godly, has managed fully to tame the tongue, even by the end of a long life of walking with God. Such is our intractable tendency towards selfishness and excuse and pettiness and hypocrisy and cruelty and falsehood and boasting and silliness all of which comes so effortlessly and unbidden out of our mouths. Now, there are two kinds of fire. 
One that purifies, one that destroys. But the fire that the tongue sets ablaze is of the destroying kind. James seems to envision the fires of hell reaching up into our lives and then coming out of our mouths. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. That's a searching statement. We complain, you and I, about someone blaspheming God or Christ. We may even write to the newspaper or to the television company, but we hardly ever realize that the critical and condemning words that we speak about others are equivalent to defaming the image of God in which those people have been made. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Obviously not, for the bitter water or salt water would prevail. The sweet water would be corrupted. We're being warned that it is the bad things that we tend to say that are best remembered and that have the greatest and most enduring effect. Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. As our Savior taught us, the fount of our words is our heart, the spring in this particular case. Our speech is the index of our true self. If ever there were a reason to control the words that we speak, it is this. We are our words in a very real way. Now, before we take up James' main point, I want to reflect with you just a moment on the amazing thing that speech actually is. No one has proposed a serious explanation of how this power might have developed so recently in evolutionary time, why the gap between the other animals and human beings is so immense in this respect. What modern linguistics has demonstrated beyond all contradiction is that no other animals have language in the same sense in which we use the term. Nor has anyone remotely explained the fabulous complexity and creativity and the innateness of human language. Here we do speak some 8,000 languages in the world. And all of us can learn those languages. And as infants and then little children, we learn to speak without even really being taught. I read an article this week proposing human speech as another argument for the existence of God. The authors of the article were arguing that language itself when considered seriously, is impossible to account for on naturalistic or materialistic terms. We often don't stop to think about this. Language is so fundamental a part of our ordinary life that we rarely stop to ponder what it is and what it does. But in fact, language is immaterial. Words, which are symbols, 
can be joined according to a set of rules, what we call grammar, to form an infinite number of complex meanings, none of which is material. Our words and sentences may sometimes refer to something that may be seen or touched, though they usually don't, but the language itself is immaterial. It may be communicated in a material way, words on a page or sound waves hitting the eardrum, or for that matter, a digital message winging its way through the air to some computer or phone. But the language itself is not the ink, it's not the paper, it's not the sound waves, it's not the computer code. Those are merely some of the various ways in which language is communicated. Carl Sagan famously said that the cosmos is all there is, or ever was, or ever will be. That is a materialist definition of reality. But it is quite obviously untrue, and it has been known to be untrue for a very long time. Language is not the cosmos. The world of words, grammar, meaning... The organization, the manipulation, the communication of concepts, of ideas, of propositions is utterly non-material. And of course that means that the human beings who use language as we do, who possess this extraordinary power of thought, expression, and communication, cannot be accounted for by matter alone. This, the authors contend, is an argument for the existence of God, a person not only capable of investing human life with this extraordinary power, but of using language, such as the DNA code in every living cell, to organize, indeed to create, every living thing. The amino acids and the proteins that make up the code are material things, to be sure, The language by which they are organized and according to which they function and without which they have no function is not material at all. So as as we begin, let's not fail to appreciate what an extraordinary thing this power of speech and communication actually is. How profoundly it separates us from all other living creatures, how fundamental it is to human life, to education, to culture, to heritage, and all of that supremely because it is so absolutely critical, fundamental to relationships, to the interaction and communication of persons. We speak because God is a person, and as a person, he communicates and intends to communicate with us and for us to be able to communicate with him. And with one another. So much of human life rests upon and is made possible by this gift God has given us. It is our words, more than anything else, that bind us to one another. But alas, it is our words, more than anything else, that drive us apart. It is this reason, the extraordinary potential of speech, but it's so often misbegotten use that makes the sins of our tongue so inexcusable, so harmful, so contrary to everything a Christian ought to aspire to be and hope to be. 
in this life. This is a passage of particular importance for me because I'm one of those teachers to whom James refers in verse 1. I suppose we think, and rightly, that one of the reasons teachers are judged more strictly is because they exercise an influence on the lives of others, teaching them what to think and how to live. So how faithfully or poorly they do their job, how true or false the words they speak, how well they speak them, has an influence on others, how others live their lives. I'm sure that's right. I know how profoundly I have been influenced and continue to be influenced by many of my teachers. However, I think a part, at least, of what James is after here is simpler and even more obvious than that. The problem faced by a teacher is that he talks a lot. And as we read in Proverbs, when words are many, Transgression is not lacking, or as we learned it from the King James Version, in the multitude of words there wanteth not sin. It's so difficult to control the tongue, and my tongue is flapping all the time. People ask me questions, they expect me to speak, and I do. And far too often, I prove James right. No human being can tame the tongue. More than anything else in my life, but I suspect this is true in yours, I regret the things I've said and the things I never thought to say. And I often regret the way I said something, even if what I said was in itself accurate or acceptable, maybe even useful. But very often it's the very thing I said, not the way in which it was said. I remember the first time I came across this passage in a sermon of Alexander White and how how it arrested me because it was so obviously true, but a truth that no one had put quite this way to me before. Pascal has many dreadful things to say about the corruption and misery of man. But he has nothing that strikes its terrible barb deeper into all all our consciences than this. That if all our friends only knew what we have said about them behind their back, we would not have four friends in the world. Do you, can you disagree? Not very long ago, not nearly long enough in fact, I made some stupidly critical remarks about somebody else. I realized almost immediately, not as quickly as as should have been the case, but almost immediately, how small-minded and how foolish I had been to say what I said. Stupid, stupid, stupid. I had to say to myself, and I've had to say to myself repeatedly ever since. I've thought about those remarks for several months now, and the more I think about them, the less well I think about myself. At my age, at my station in life, knowing what I know as an experienced Christian and as a minister, with the heroes that I have, committed as I am to these principles, often as I have counseled others to do the very opposite of what I did, how could I have been so stupid as to open my mouth and make those comments. They were petty, useless, 
they reflected far more negatively on me than on the one about whom I spoke. I was humiliated by my behavior, had to apologize to the man to whom I made the remark. Unfortunately, words go deep and are hard to forget. And now I have to live with the fact that I spoke those words and they may well not be forgotten for a long time, if ever. None of those consequences, of course, occurred to me when I opened my big mouth. Only too late did I realize for the umpteenth time the truth, so obviously the truth that one can find it taught by pagans as well as Christians, that one virtually never regrets keeping his mouth shut, but so often regrets having opened it. I remember an obiter dictum, a casual comment or an aside of Martin Lloyd-Jones. Look back and think of the times when you were unhappy, and you will find that it was almost certainly due to something you said and which you regretted saying, perhaps for days. My only encouragement is that if Lloyd-Jones knew to say that, obviously truth gained from his own experience, he was not above committing the same stupid sins that I commit with my tongue. Or consider this powerful passage from another sermon of Alexander White. A holy man used to say when he returned home from a night of table talk that he would never accept such an invitation again. So remorseful did such nights always leave him. So impossible did he find it for him to hold his peace and to speak only at the right moment and only in the right way. And without his holiness, I have often had his remorse. And so I am quite sure have many of you. There is no table we sit out very long that we do not more or less ruin, either to ourselves or to someone else. We either talk too much and thus weary and disgust people, or they weary and disgust us. We start ill-considered, unwise, untimely topics. We blurt out our rude minds in rude words. We push aside our neighbor's opinion as if both he and his opinion were worthless, and we thrust forward our own as if wisdom would die with us. We do not put ourselves into our neighbor's place. We have no imagination and conversation and no humility and no love. We lay down the law and we instruct people who could buy us at one end of the market and sell us in the other if they thought us worth the trouble. It's easy to say grace. It's easy to eat and drink in moderation and with decorum and refinement. But it is our tongue that so ensnares us. For some men to command their tongue, to bridle and guide and moderate and make just the right use of their tongue is a conquest of religion and in morals and in good manners that not one in a thousand of us has yet made over ourselves. As James reminds us here, we all stumble in many ways. I've been reading at Mr. Pfefferly's suggestion a fascinating autobiography by John Wenham, the English evangelical Anglican scholar and churchman, contemporary of J.I. Packer and John Stott, who died in 1996. Wenham tells us that as a young man and a young Christian, he was greatly inspired by C.T. Studd, the captain of England's cricket team in the later years of the 19th century, the young Cambridge University student who, with six of his fellows, under the influence of the preaching of D.L. Moody, gave up his glittering prospects in England to go to China as a missionary. 
Wenham knew Studd's life and work primarily through the biography written by Norman Grubb, Studd's son-in-law. Studd had been uh, uh, invalided home uh, from China, uh, a sick man at the time. But then after a while at home, he saw an advertisement for for a missionary meeting which read, Cannibals Want Missionaries. Inspired by the need, in Central Africa, Stud left England again, this time for the Belgian Congo, where he was to remain the last 20 years of his life. Inspiring indeed. Stud, remember, is the man who famously remarked, If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. But Wenham goes on. Missionary biographies in those days tended to glorify God by telling you all the good things about the missionaries, but seldom revealing their weaknesses. Studd, with his health problems, became a drug addict, saying that heroin was one of God's greatest gifts to mankind. This seems to have caused him to become somewhat unbalanced, calling upon his fellow workers to ever greater measures of dedication. He asked what a Tommy in the trenches would say when ordered to go over the top. He would say, I don't care a damn, and obey. D-C-D, don't care a damn, was to be all the missionaries' responses in Stud's organization when they were frightened or when they were discouraged. Sadly, his... Missionary Society, the Worldwide Evangelization Crusade, had several splits. A number of excellent missionaries hived off in various directions. It was only after Studd's death that the World Evangelization Crusade leapt forward and became a tremendous missionary society. We all stumble in many ways. Truer words were never written. It's a fact that at one and the same time, is both humiliating and consoling. But what James is telling us here is that no matter the endless variety of our sins, all of us also stumble in one way, that is, in our speech. Even the greatest of Christians had to repent of the sins of their tongue to the end of their lives. We admire, and rightly, Samuel Rutherford's devotion to Christ and the way in which his words have provided such comfort and encouragement and inspiration to many through the letters he wrote to parishioners and friends. But his mouth was also a spring from which both fresh and salt water poured out. It may surprise you to know that the man whom we love and admire so much for his devotion to the Lord Jesus was a man who made many enemies and usually by the things he said about them. Sometimes his words were true and perhaps needed to be spoken, but far too often he was rash and ill-tempered, and he offended even his friends when there was no need to do so. Well, if that were true of Samuel Rutherford, what about you and me? Surely interesting and instructive that James does not tell us here what to do about our selfish, proud, and intemperate speech. He doesn't give us advice 
about how to gain control of our tongues and to put them ever more regularly to good use and to put a stop to the bad uses we too often make of this power to speak. All he's done in these 12 verses is to warn us that we sin very regularly with our speech, that our spoken sins do great damage, that there is no excuse for them, and that they contradict our convictions in a very fundamental way. Actually, this is very like Proverbs, where also we read about the damage our sinful speech does and the good that holy and loving speech does, but are nowhere given a method by which to put the sins of the tongue to death. He doesn't tell us, as he might have done, always to think before we speak, or at least more often than we do now, to plan ahead of time what we ought to say in this situation or in that situation. Or to keep a record of our ill-chosen words so that the lesson of our failures stays with us. Or to keep a record of the speech we have heard that has struck us as exactly that kind of speech a Christian should aspire to. So that good examples of godly speech are likewise kept vividly in our mind's eye. Obviously, fundamental to the sanctification of our speech, perhaps more important than anything else, is simply to have clear in our minds how despicable our spoken words so often are. Motivation is everything in the Christian life. And so nothing is more important than being genuinely convinced to hate our spoken stumbles and to love speech that is devout and kind and gracious and sympathetic and useful and uplifting. That was Rutherford's point when he advised John Fleming, one of his correspondents, make conscience of all your conversation, something Rutherford should have done better than he did. Keep in the front of your mind the whole problem of your speech, whether spoken or written. Never cease to be aware of the danger that is posed by opening your mouth. Remember that you often stumble right here. Be alive to your penchant to use your words in the wrong way. The more alert you are to the danger, the more aggrieved by your sins of the tongue, the more control you will exercise over the words that come out of your mouth. This seems to be the Bible's primary technique in sanctifying our speech. To warn us of the danger in order to make, in order to make us careful about what we say. Perhaps you have heard the story told of St. Philip Neri, the Italian lay worker and later priest famous for his ministry to the down and outers in Rome in the 16th century. It is said that he gave an unusual penance to a novice who had a fondness for talking about other people. He told the young man to take a pillow to the top of a church tower on a blustery day and release all the feathers into the wind. And then he was to come down from the tower and collect all the feathers and put them back into the pillow. Of course, the novice could do nothing of the kind. He couldn't find most of the feathers. And that, of course, was the point. Kind words usually stop at those to whom they are spoken. Tail-bearing, juicy gossip, critical comment, 
it just goes and goes, doing harm along the way and to a great many hearts. Remembering that is more important than any technique by which we might sanctify our speech. But James has not left the matter entirely at motivation. It's not as if he has not already said something of great practical usefulness in this area of the Christian life. Like Proverbs, James as well talks about the same thing over and again in his short letter. In chapter 1, verse 19, in a general exhortation to godliness, James has already urged us to be slow to speak. Interestingly, there too, he uses our speech as a supreme example of our problem with sin. Being slow to speak, James says there, is one way of getting rid of what he calls our filthiness and rampant wickedness. He might have used other behavior as an example, but he chose speech and anger to make the point that you and I have a lot to do, a lot to look after if we're going to live godly lives in this world. In particular there, James reminded us that if we took care to keep our mouths shut until we had something worthwhile to say, we would not only cut out a great deal of unprofitable and hurtful speech, but truly Christ-like speech would thus become a much higher percentage of the sum total of our words. When we considered that text in an earlier sermon, we pointed out that even pagans are well aware that the less we open our mouths, the more likely we will speak to better effect when we do. But we Christians have higher reasons, nobler, more sacred reasons to be slow to speak. James has mentioned some of them here. We use our tongues to bless God and so should not use the same instrument to curse those who have been made in his image. We'll be judged for the words that we use. Ill-motivated and ill-timed words do great damage to other people. And a Christian knows that he has no business in life as a follower of Jesus Christ damaging other people. Sinful speech can cancel out the good we do. And being Christians, we desire to do good in the service of the Lord Jesus Christ. I was reminded again this week that there is a broad, even in our own Reformed and Presbyterian circles, nowadays a positive dislike of the idea of an emphasis on practical obedience, talking about obedience, talking about how to obey. The too often discredited idea that only, if only we will relax in God's love for us and concentrate on our love for Him, the obedience will come, as it were, unbidden. That idea, I say, has resurfaced again in our day. And the result is that there is among many of our people, many of our ministers indeed, little interest in practical instruction in the art of right living, the sort of instruction that James has given us here when he tells us to be slow to speak because so many of our words would have been better left unspoken. But the masters of the Christian life through the ages will not agree with that disinterest in the practice of wisdom and godliness. 
They're all for taking practical steps, for learning the art of godly living, and for working out the way of obedience, even as we look to the grace of God and the love of Christ for our motivation and to his Holy Spirit for our daily strength. In his little masterpiece, Life Together, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's instruction in Christian living addressed to the young seminarians of his clandestine seminary, hidden from the Nazis as it had to be, we find a section entitled, The Ministry of Holding One's Tongue. And it begins this way. Often we combat our evil thoughts most effectively if we absolutely refuse to allow them to be expressed in words. It is certain that the spirit of self-justification can be overcome only by the spirit of grace. Nevertheless, isolated thoughts of judgment can be curbed and smothered by never allowing them the right to be uttered, except as a confession of sin. He who holds his tongue in check controls both mind and body, he's citing James 3.2 and following. The context of obedience, you see very clearly there, is that of divine grace and the necessity of the Spirit's help, but the instruction is practical and direct. Shut up with your critical, self-justifying speech. Just make it a practice of keeping your mouth shut, which, after all, is what James told us to do here. Bonhoeffer went on to make it a rule for the small seminary community that it was simply forbidden to speak of a brother if he were absent and not present in the conversation. Even under the cloak of help and goodwill, for it is precisely in this guise that the spirit of hatred among brothers always creeps in when it is seeking to create mischief. He, wise man that he was, admitted that there would be exceptions, but he wanted such exceptions to be clearly exceptions to a general rule that was otherwise strictly obeyed. And he promised his students this. Should they obey that rule with intention, never talking about someone who wasn't present, he said, where this discipline of the tongue is practiced right from the beginning, each individual will make a matchless discovery. He will be able to cease from constantly scrutinizing the other person, judging him, condemning him, putting him in his particular place where he can gain ascendancy over him and thus doing violence to him as a person. Now he can allow the brother to exist as a completely free person as God made him to be. His view expands, and to his amazement, for the first time, he sees, shining above his brethren, the richness of God's creative glory. God did not make this person as I would have made him. He did not give him to me as a brother for me to dominate and control, but in order that I might find above him the Creator. God does not will that I should fashion the other person according to the image that seems good to me, that is, my own image. Rather, in his very freedom from me, God made this person in his image. I can never know beforehand how God's image should appear in others. To me, the sight may seem strange, even ungodly. But God creates every man in the likeness of his Son, the Crucified. After all, even that image certainly looked strange and ungodly to me before I grasped it. 
wise words, don't you think? Is that not what God desires from us? And is that not what we ourselves desire for ourselves from others? Be slow to speak. Think before you speak. Consider your words. Realize how powerful they are and weigh them before you utter them. All of this is what is meant by be slow to speak. But wise Christians have often reduced that general rule to be slow to speak to more specific applications. A common one among the masters of the Christian life throughout Christian history is whatever else you talk about, don't talk about yourself. What does it mean to be slow to speak in very practical terms? Well, it means this to begin with, stopping talking so much about yourself. Stop this constant drawing attention to yourself, your opinions, your views of people and things, your likes and your dislikes. A great deal of harmful speech would be eliminated if only this rule were followed. Don't talk about myself. Another one is simpler still. Don't be the one who talks the most in any group. School yourself to speak less than others do. If you are alert to the ratio, it's amazing how it will shut you up. I have found it so. Don't ever talk to others about someone you dislike or someone who has offended you unless it is to praise him. That is a rule that is easier to follow than you might think. You may find yourself thinking a great deal about that person. If he has offended you, you certainly will think a great deal about that person. And if honest, you'll have no difficulty detecting the vengeance in your thinking. But if you have made a rule of this for yourself, you will know at the same time that you are forbidden to utter those thoughts, that it will be a moral failure on your part to do so, an act of disloyalty to God to do so, I too, I have found this also to be so. I can be quiet about those I'm sorely tempted to dislike simply because it is so obvious to me that I cannot trust myself to speak about the person in a way that would please God and reflect well on myself. Such simple rules as these are easier to remember and practice than more general ones, such as think before you speak, or consider the likely consequences of your words, and so on. Speaking comes so naturally to us, and we do so much of it throughout a day. I think it is impossible for us to think ahead of time about everything we are going to say before we say it. The art of godly speech, James is telling us, is to find the ways to cut out the particularly bad forms of our speech, And those forms are almost always the same. The speech we utter about ourselves and the words we speak about people we don't like or with whom we disagree or toward whom we carry some grudge. Cut out the big stuff, the obvious stuff, and see what a difference that makes. Then you can go on to refine your speech, making it in every way the servant of the new man, and not of the old. That, James says, is wisdom. Amen.